Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This fifth season of our podcast is a special deep dive into a case that we covered as it was happening, the trial of Robert Durst for the murder of his good friend and confidant, Susan Berman. In Jury Duty, the Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks, we present a series of exclusive interviews with LA Deputy District Attorney John Lewin, the lead prosecutor in that trial. John takes us on his journey from the very beginning of his involvement with the case, through the trial, and through the death of Robert Durst on January 10th, 2022. In our last installment, John and I concluded our deep dive into Durst's time on the witness stand. In this episode, Lewin discusses the defense closing arguments in the trial. That's coming up right after the break. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A few quick program notes. Because the interviews had to be conducted by phone during one of John's early morning or late evening neighborhood hikes along a busy coastal road, the quality often is not optimal. We will clarify when it seems critical to understanding Lewin's narrative. Today, we hear from John Lewin his perspective on the defense closing arguments in the trial. All of the excerpts in this episode are drawn from Season 2, Episode 32 of this Jury Duty podcast. And now, here is more of my conversation with John Lewin. Okay, so we're going to start with the defense closing arguments. Dick Garin, in his closing, accuses you of... Nine days of beating up a sick old man that can't defend himself. Calculated to cause you to hate him. I wouldn't blame you after seeing what you've seen in this courtroom for hating Bob Durst. I don't. I've known him for 20 years. And I am proud. I am proud to stand before you and defend Robert Durst when almost no one in the world would do so but me and my small team. What was your response when you heard Dick say that? Well, I was shocked he could do it with a straight face. You know, I said to myself, gosh, how many times did he practice that in front of a mirror where he was able to do it without laughing or spitting up his lunch? Because it was just so fraudulently insincere. Let's take him one at a time. Bob was not a poor, sick old man. Bob was a guy who got up there and lied his ass off for two weeks. The jury knew it. They knew it. We knew it. Everybody knew it. Bob also engendered very little sympathy because even though he was old and sick, it was clear how much he loved and relished the experience. You know, some people are so attention-starved and so attention-craving that in the end, they don't care what kind of attention it is. It's almost like there are guys who just like to fight. They don't care if they get their ass kicked. They don't care if they get their nose broken. They just like to fight. That was Bob. So the idea that somehow... I had beaten up on a sick old man. Here's the problem. If you're going to make that argument, you have to say to yourself, are there jurors where that's going to land with, where it's going to help me? And if there are, 
how many, and by doing it, are there other jurors that are going to be so disgusted by what I'm saying that they're not going to listen to anything else? So I think even a semi-competent attorney would have looked at it and said, in the boundaries of this case, with the evidence that's come in, that's an argument that will not help me. But, you know, he made it anyway. Now, the second part was just hysterical. Basically trying to say that no one would defend Bob. You know, I wanted to look to see if while he was saying that, he was counting the money. Because, obviously, and everybody knew it, if you're a public defender, you can stand up and say, hey, listen, I'm defending people that nobody else wants to defend. You can do that. You can't defend a guy who's worth tens of millions of dollars, more lawyers than the jurors can count, when there's evidence of how much money he's spending on that defense, and then try to make it sound like you're just, you know, the only people that believed in Bob, and here you are, you know, defending your friend Bob. It was, again, it wasn't just that it was disgusting, which it was. It was that it was laughable. And I've talked to, there's not one person that I've spoken to, not one, who has said, oh, yeah, you know what, that was uh, a helpful argument. Everybody, every media person, every lawyer, every person in the courtroom who heard that just said, oh, my God, are you kidding? There's no way he just said that. But he did. He also said, I wouldn't blame you after hearing what you heard if you hate Bob Durst and believe he's a liar. But making Bob Durst a liar does not make him a killer. They have to bring evidence whether it's direct evidence or circumstantial evidence, and there's no direct evidence. So this is where you get into the problem of, is he ignorant or slimy or combination? So first of all, that is an improper statement. It's an improper statement because it is factually untrue. This case was loaded with direct evidence. You had numerous confessions. Remember, direct evidence in the end is what someone hears, sees, smells, tastes, touches. So... The best direct evidence you can have is an eyewitness, potentially, but eyewitnesses can be mistaken, and or a confession. And when you have numerous confessions to different people, that's the best evidence you can get. Because you can't say to yourself, well, you know, unlike a witness, hey, maybe that witness was wrong. You can't say, you know what, maybe that defendant, you know, actually didn't know what he was confessing to. So it was factually wrong. And I don't know if the problem is that Dick still does not understand what the difference is between direct and circumstantial evidence. Now, of course, the judge knew it was wrong and ended up correcting it. But, yeah, I was shocked because it's just so improper. He could have simply said, hey, listen, the direct evidence in this case is not compelling. It's not believable. It's not, et cetera. But you cannot make statements that are factually wrong. You can't do it. You're not allowed to. So I don't know. If you ask me, do I think there are things that Dick did in this case that I think he did knowing that they were completely unethical and outside the bounds, and he did them anyway. This is one where I don't know if he knows. I don't know if right now he's teaching evidence at the University of Texas Law School. How? How is that possible? He doesn't know what hearsay is. He doesn't know what relevance is. He doesn't know basic evidentiary objections. He doesn't know the difference between direct and circumstantial evidence. That's the problem. I don't want people to tell me it's because, oh, he's older now. No, he just doesn't know. What about when he raised? I want to talk to you first about how I first came into the case and what as the evidence shows, we found and what we presented in Galveston. In my opinion, based on the evidence, Galveston shouldn't be in this case. In my opinion, it's here to prejudice you. So there are certain things that lawyers don't do because they are just so blatantly improper 
that they understand that they can't get away with it and they get in trouble. So as a prosecutor, I can't get up and say when a defendant didn't testify, hey, you never heard from Bob Durst. Blatant improper. No lawyer can get up there and tell a jury, there is evidence that I know that you didn't get to hear. It is 100% improper. It's something that the bar, if they looked at it, will 100% every time say that's improper. So was I surprised when he got up and said that? I wasn't, because I don't think he's an ethical lawyer. There's a reason I didn't shake he and Chesnoff's hand after the case. I never would. I'm an honest, sincere person. I don't have phony handshakes. The level of respect I have for either one of them cannot be measured. You can have a seismograph, the most sophisticated machine in the world, to determine the level of respect I have for the two of them, and it will register a zero. There'll be no movement. So, yeah, was I surprised? No. Was I disgusted, angry beyond belief? Absolutely. Because I didn't think even DeGaron would go there. It was absurd. And by the way, not only is it improper, it's untrue. The problem with Galveston is not that they heard more evidence that jury than this jury heard. The problem is they didn't hear the same evidence this jury got to hear. This jury heard many things about Galveston that the Galveston jury never heard. Now, what did this jury not hear? Well, they were not able to hear the character assassination of Morris Black, the bullshit they were able to get away with at Galveston. So when Dick said that, it was blatantly improper. I was angry beyond belief because I was in shock. You know, to truly be angry, you need a level of surprise and shock because if you expect something is coming, you're going to be angry. But you know what? Yeah, I didn't think he would do it. I thought he might, and here it is. I never believed for a second that DeGarrett would stand up there and tell the jury that, one, he knows evidence they don't know, that a Galveston jury has already decided this, and that that jury heard evidence they never got to hear. Three things you are, per se, a first-year law clerk understands you can't do that. So I want to know I want to know from DeGarrett, so Dick, since anybody who's done this for a month and a half would understand how improper that was, why'd you do that? And you know what the answer is. So I, I was disgusted and angry. There was no acting on my part. What you saw was my genuine and sincere response. It's been months now since, and I'm still angry about it. Well, you know, on top of that, he also said, in my opinion, based on the evidence, Galveston shouldn't be in this case. It's here to prejudice you. Well, not only it's here to prejudice you, what he said was, he said that it had been improperly admitted by the judge. Now, again, an absolute no-no. And such a no-no that I've never even heard of a lawyer doing that because the person you're going to, what you're basically saying is, judge, you fucked up. Okay. And then to not only say it shouldn't have been admitted, but then to say, and it was admitted, to intentionally prejudice you against Bob. Well, that's a shot at the judge. So listen, Mark Wyndham is a very good, decent guy. Do I think that he should have been angrier than he was at that? Absolutely. I think 99% of judges I know would have gone crazy. Now. Listen, that quality that, that Judge Wyndham has is what made this trial so smooth. So the fact that he was able to keep his ego in his pocket and to not explode, you know, probably was helpful. The one negative of it, though, is that that incident happened because the defense understood that basically whatever they did, they were never going to suffer serious consequences. I think Judge Wyndham, and this is my impression, you know, he's obviously never said anything to me about this. This is my complete speculation. But I think that he understood that the evidence was overwhelming. He thought we were going to win this case, and he wanted the defense to have every opportunity 
And even when they did slimy things, I think his view was it wasn't going to make a difference. And you know what? He was right. It didn't make a difference. I'm more traditional in that regard. And it bothered me so much that it just can't happen. So for me, I'm not just able to go, well, it's not really hurting. It doesn't really matter. The jury isn't buying it. My thing is you can't as a lawyer say some things like that and not suffer extreme consequences. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In this next part of our conversation, I ask Lewin about Dick DeGaran's efforts to discredit prosecution evidence that the animation prepared by the defense in the Galveston trial is contradicted by the testimony of the defendant himself. What about Dick's comment about your use of the animation from Galveston in your case? So, so listen, the animation could have been theoretically possible with a couple of exceptions. One of the exceptions was is that Bob ends up, his hand is on the wrong part of the gun, and it shows his hand all of a sudden on the other side during the animation with no explanation of how it gets there. But the bigger problem, and what we were able to show was, it's not that the animation was impossible, couldn't have happened. It's that Bob's testimony was inconsistent with the animation. So they had the same problem that they always have with Bob is that in the end, Bob's testimony did not support the animation, and Bob is the only way to get the animation in. So what we did is, once we got on the case, we gave Bevel the animation. We gave him Bob's testimony. We gave him the defense reconstructionist testimony. And what Bevel was able to say is, hey, listen, Bob's version of what happened when he testified is inconsistent with the physical evidence in the case. It doesn't work. And it's inconsistent with the animation. Now, the animation in itself, other than some of the issues I told you, would work. But it only works if Bob sets the foundational predicate of what happened. So the problem is they had an expert do a great animation, and Bob wasn't able to stick to the script when he testified at Galveston. That's the kind of thing where that's what I expect the defense attorneys. They get up there, they make arguments that are inconsistent with the evidence, but that's what defense attorneys do. I mean, listen, when you're a defense attorney, this is the big, you know, kind of untold secret of what we do, okay? 99% of the time, defense attorneys are not trying to get to the truth of what occurred because 99% of the time, their clients committed whatever crime they're charged with. So it doesn't help for a defense attorney to say to his client, hey, listen, we're going to make sure that the jury in this case, by the time it's over, they're going to know exactly what happened. Well, shit, most defendants are going to say, I don't want that. That's not going to help me. But that's the game. That's what they do. So what they're going to do is they're going to try to focus on anything they can to divert, to mislead in a legally acceptable way. This is why I could never be a defense attorney. And I respect them, particularly the public defenders. My goal as a lawyer is I want the jury to actually see what happened. That's what I want. And here's the great thing, and it's happened to me. If I have a case 
where in the end it turns out that my theory is inconsistent with the evidence as it turns out, I'll dismiss the case. I've done that in my career several different times. That's ethically the way that I think we need to handle ourselves because in the end, I'm out there because I want justice done. This is why I didn't care who was on the other side. I love going against the best lawyers possible. Bring in the best lawyers out there because I have confidence in my team that we don't care who we're up against. Bring in the best. We'll kick your ass. We're going to be better, more prepared. And the best thing, I tell, say this all the time, why do we win my cases? I win my cases because the people I prosecuted did the crimes they're charged with. That's a very basic reason why I win. You know, you, you go through all the other stuff, et cetera. That's why I win, because I'm prosecuting individuals who committed these crimes. So all that I have to do is get a jury to understand and to see what happened. If I do that, I'm going to win. 99% of the cases that you go in and watch, if both attorneys from the beginning said, hey, listen, we're going to agree that we just want the jury to understand everything that happened with this crime, the crime itself, the defense would almost never take up that offer because they're going to lose. Generally, the best they have is, well, my client committed the crime, but here's why you should feel sorry for him. Here's why, to some degree, it's mitigated. And oftentimes, like this case, they don't have anything. So, you know, the defense had a lot of options in this case of how they could have tried it, argued it, et cetera. So in the beginning, they had 300 choices in this case, 300 forks in the road where they could have gone one way or the other. And almost without exception, if they had a choice of where they could go, they took the wrong one. Every time. And listen, you know, we made that happen because we would be telling them, hey, take door number one when we wanted them to take door number two. And they go, no, we don't want door number one. We're taking door number two. We did that over and over and over again. Pretty basic, you know, but it worked every time. During closings, Dick attacked Kathy about the abortion decision. And what were your thoughts when Dick went back to the abortion issue in his closing? So this is an error on so many levels. So we'll start with the basics. You have to know where you are and who your audience is. We had, politically, a very liberal jury. Politically. I would make a wager that probably... 90% of them, maybe more, would support abortion and a very liberal view of abortion. So if you know that, then you got to be real careful. This isn't East Texas where you can basically kind of bring up abortion as if somehow that is going to be a strike against Kathy because you're going to have people who just by you bringing it up are so concerned with the issue that they're going to have the opposite response, and any attack on Kathy getting an abortion is an attack on the right to abortion, and you're going to hurt yourself five times worse. That's the first problem. The second problem, which Dick never seemed to understand, is that even people who are pro-choice, okay, the most adamant pro-choice, ultra-liberal person out there, the person who wants, you know, abortion on demand as the baby is coming through, you know, being born. And, and as you know, there are people who believe that. You can take that person and you tell them that I want to change one fact. The husband is making the wife get an abortion. They will switch so quickly because a lot of their viewpoints have to do with issues about misogyny in society and their view of, you know, the United States as a paternalistic, et cetera, et cetera. The problem for Dick is, is that in the end, it's not that Kathy chose to get an abortion. Bob forced her to get an abortion. And any discussion about that 
hurts you with people who are against abortion and it hurts you with people who are pro-choice because the idea is that wasn't Kathy's choice. So every time Dick brought up the abortion stuff, I was just amazed. If you notice, I didn't spend much time on it. That was deliberate. I wanted to make sure that on appeal there wasn't going to be some issue of, you know, Bob forced Kathy to get an abortion and therefore jurors didn't like that and that's why they convicted him. So sometimes as a lawyer, you have to understand that if you have a piece of evidence that is potentially problematic, once that evidence is in, if you argue it forcefully, it just gives the appellate lawyer for the defense the opening to argue, see, judge, this was really important. Look, he argued it, blah, blah, blah. Whereas what I do is I won't argue it at all, and it will allow the attorney general to say, hey, listen, Lewin, they didn't even bring that up in closing, Your Honor. This was such a minor part of the case. They never even argued it. And my experience is, is that pieces of evidence, jurors understand what they are. You know, this is not a subtle piece of evidence. So in other words, if a juror believes that the abortion issue is relevant, you don't have to explain it to them. Now, the other reason that they never seem to understand, and they're wrong, and the cases support it, and this is why I was very confident that even a very liberal Cal Supreme Court would have affirmed this case, is that the issue on this case is that not that Bob is going to be punished for quote, forcing Kathy to have an abortion. The issue is, is that this is another example of domestic violence and of the cycle of abuse and control. That was our whole theory of the case. So in the end, Bob didn't say, and this is crucial, if Bob had said, hey, listen, Kathy wanted to have kids, but in the end, she had an abortion, okay? Let's say that's the evidence. And let's say I got up and I said, and Bob forced Kathy to have an abortion. Well, a court could say, hey, listen, now, there's evidence for you to make that argument, but that is such a dangerous area that you arguing Bob forced Kathy to have an abortion, that's a step past what the evidence is, and we're going to find that was prejudicial, et cetera. But that's not what we had. We had Bob himself admitting repeatedly he forced her, he made her get an abortion. So basically, that really put us in a position where it was a place we could argue. Again, why did they bring it up? This is, again, they never understood where they were and who their jury was. Never. They didn't understand it in pretrial. They didn't understand it during jury select. They didn't understand it during the trial. They didn't understand it during argument. I think they figured it out at the verdict. There was also DeGaren's statement. Please don't get the idea that we're trying to trash Kathy, but the plain facts are even Jimmy McCormick, her brother, when he testified, said that the family was worried about her and cocaine. Cocaine is a terrible drug. People can easily overdo it. It's not just a recreational drug. Here in California, marijuana is now, you can buy it. There, there are airplanes flying around advertising. They'll deliver to your door. But that's not cocaine. What were your thoughts on that? So yet again, an extremely ineffective decision by the defense. So this is what they never seem to understand. First of all, Kathy's drug use and her missing school, et cetera, was directly related to Bob's conduct. So when they would argue, well, Kathy's missing school, she's, you know, flunking out, as if, like, that's evidence that helps them. Everybody listening understood, everybody knew, that you know what, that's because of Bob. In other words, the reason Kathy's missing school the reason that Kathy has these issues is because Bob is mistreating her. 
everybody understood that from the beginning. The defense didn't get it. So every time that they would attack Kathy, not only did it not work factually, but it just made our point. We were able to say, wait a minute. So they would say, well, look, Kathy's missing school. And by the way, what they also never understood is never understood the timeline of when she was missing school and what was going on when she was missing school. And all they had to do was listen to the evidence that had already been presented in conditional examination. So it's not like we just surprised them with information they didn't know about. So as an example, they did not know and Bob did not know. And by the way, I don't think for a second the defense did not tell Bob what to say about Lennox Hill. They don't know the records. They don't know anything. They knew very little about this case, in my opinion. Bob would just make shit up as they went along. Half the time, his lawyers didn't even understand how bad the mistakes were. They didn't even know. They didn't know until we would zap them with it. Lennox Hill didn't know anything about where Kathy had applied for residency. So the cocaine, the constant talking about Kathy missing school, they knew all that information. They had heard all the testimony. So how could they continue to go back to that well when they knew that it was poisonous? I don't know. So in addition to the allegations of Kathy's cocaine addiction, when they tried to use evidence that it was impacting her and that she was in rehab, did you find any mistakes that they made in making those allegations? So from the very start of this case, I started making what I call a comprehensive timeline, my document. And it's, you know, 300, 400 pages going through every single day that was important in this case, every single fact that was important by day. It was very clear to us early that they didn't understand basic things about timelines. They didn't understand that Kathy was in her fourth year of medical school and that she wasn't doing classroom work anymore. They didn't understand when it was that she was struggling with medical school and how she was doing at the end. This got made worse for them because you had a combination of them not understanding the timeline. And by understanding the timeline, let's be clear, they have the same information we do. You know, they got paid whatever it is, you know, 10, 12, 8 million, whatever it was. They could have gone and done everything that we did. They didn't do it. So it was made worse by the fact that when Bob testified, they didn't have any idea what Bob was going to say. That was clear. Bob didn't know what he was going to say. So in order to effectively respond to what Bob said, you would have to, one, understand the timeline to be able to figure out where Bob had stepped in it. And then you would have to be able to figure out what you could do to get around it. In actuality, had they had my timeline, it wouldn't have mattered once Bob said the things. He was done. So there was no stepping around the dog shit. That's all that was there. He didn't step on a puddle of dog shit. No, he basically fell into a sewer. There's no, can't get him out. So they never understood, as an example, they're talking about how Kathy's drug use is leading to her missing classes. But yet Bob is testifying that her drug use didn't get bad till November of 1981. And they're trying to explain her missing classes because of, you know, she's a drug addict a year, a year and a half before. That's just basic. I mean, that's just understanding what your timeline is. They didn't understand how she did in their rotations. Half the time, we would put up evidence, and it looked by their responses that it was the first time that they were ever seeing it or understanding it. You know, this is demonstrated by, again, they stipulated, I think Mike Strzok is just the greatest example. They stipulated to a transcript of such testimony. They were actually there when he testified the first time. So they knew what he said. They had the transcript in advance. They stipulated to it. We entered it in. When we played it, they literally were objecting 
to testimony they had stipulated to, like as if they were surprised. Like all of a sudden Mike Strzok had come in there live and said something that they were unaware of. It was embarrassing to listen to the arguments. And in fact, when they attacked Judge Wyndham at one point, you know, even he had enough. And I remember him saying something like, wait a minute, you stipulated to this. You wanted this stuff in. There are things I wouldn't have allowed in. You wanted all this in. There were three items that they brought up, and I wonder your thoughts on the relevance or significance of them. The okay. first was Bob was free between 2003 and 2015, and he did not try to kill Gilberta Najami and Douglas Durst during that time. Okay, so first of all, that again showed a lack of understanding of the facts of the case. They had discovery of the incident that happened with Douglas Durst. One of them was in 2008, if you remember, where Bob shows up at the house with a gun. So there was a case that I watched, and this reminds me of it. Great case. A guy named Martin Jablonski. When I was a law clerk in San Mateo County in 1993, so first day I start, they are doing opening statements for this case. Crazy case. Martin Jablonski was this giant guy. He's on death row still. He sells his art. Martin Jablonski was like, you know, six, three, six, four, three hundred pounds. He's huge. And Jablonski had murdered his first wife. And while he was in prison, he had gotten a pen pal. And that pen pal, I think it was Carol. And Carol was always sickly and she lived with her mother. I think the mother's name was Martha. We lived in a little house in Foster City, and the marriage had never been consummated. And by the time Jablonski got paroled, Carol had a stayaway order for Jablonski from her. So he gets paroled to Riverside County, and when he's in Riverside County, he befriends this woman, and there's a recording of him in the car. He would record these, and the recording is like, oh, okay, all right, so we were, uh, we were driving out uh, to to see my dog, uh, and uh, she says, uh, wait, why are we going this way? This seems so far out. I told her, it's a good day to die. And so he's describing how he murders this woman, and then he goes on a crime spree, and the target is he wants to go up to Northern California to kill Carol. So my exposure to this case is in October of 94. I sit down in this room in the courtroom, and Jablonski is at a table. The table is like 20 feet long, and then it has a fork, and it's another 10 feet. I've never seen this in my career. He has two lawyers that are sitting 30 feet away from him at the table. They're not even close to him. Prosecutor gets up, and he does a slideshow before PowerPoint. I will never forget this. So he starts off, and he shows this little house in Foster City, and he basically introduces, you know, Carol and her mother, Martha, and he says, so they lived in this little house, and, you know, Carol had always been sickly, you know, she had had different surgeries and had never been married, she became a pen pal of Jablonski's, by the time he got paroled, she had a restraining order against him, so every morning, they would go to this donut shop, and they'd show the donut shop, and they would meet Trucker Bob. Every morning, they'd have donuts with Trucker Bob. Well, when they didn't show up the first day, Trucker Bob thought that was strange. They didn't show up the second day, he was concerned. By the third day, he's like, something's wrong. So Trucker Bob goes over to their house, close to the donut shop, and immediately he looks through the locked gate, and he can see that the cat bowls are upside down. The cats are meowing. He knows something's wrong. So he knows where the key is, goes in the house, 
And literally the next slide, if I remember, I think the mother is hanging from the ceiling. I've never seen it in a trial since, but the jurors literally were turning away. They couldn't watch it. And so he had done unspeakable things to these women. The mom had been strangled and she was being suffocated, but then he had slit her throat, which had acted as like a tracheotomy, but then she bled to death. Cut out body parts. Carol's implants had been taken out. She was in the kitchen. It was awful. The evidence in the case was incredible. So he had gone on a cross-country killing spree. Some of this evidence wasn't admitted. One of the most chilling things I've ever heard of in a case is they had him at a truck stop, and I think it's in Kansas, and it's one of his recordings. He's going, okay, yeah. He's watching a young, overweight mother with her little kid at the death of death the truck stop. He's saying, oh, yeah, okay. Shake it, baby. Oh, yeah. What I'm going to do to you. Okay. I'm making my move. And then you hear his gun drops, and he thinks somebody else has seen it, and he leaves. That woman was never identified, okay? We don't know who she is to this day. She and her daughter were seconds away from a horrific death, and they'll never know it. Just kind of the weird things of life. So Wayne's eventually arrested. He's got, among other things, he has, you can't make this up. He's got a to-do list, and he'll say things like, pick up laundry, buy milk, quote, kill Carol and her mother, go to hardware store. I mean, it was an overwhelming case. So anyway, they put on the trial, and there are three phases. They don't even argue the guilt phase. Like, the defense attorney concede guilt. The next phase is the big thing, which is the insanity phase. They're pleading not guilty by reason of insanity. And so the lawyer who was handling it was well-known in the state as an expert on cross-examining shrimps. So I was really excited to see it. So they had a shrink, the defense, to testify. And basically they say that he's got post-traumatic stress disorder from his time in Vietnam, and they go through it at length, et cetera. And he also has schizophrenia because he is hearing voices even up to this day at night in his jail cell. So the prosecutor takes over cross of this expert, and everybody is excited of what he's going to do to him. And for a whole nother day, he just lets this expert say the same things he said the day before. And I'm watching going, oh, my God, what's this guy doing? This psychiatrist is killing him. And then all of a sudden, he asks the following question. A doctor, would it affect any of the testimony or opinions you've given if that instead of seeing combat in Vietnam, the defendant had never left the United States, had never been in combat? Well, that's absurd. His medical records. So he then marks his Army records, and the whole thing was a lie. What had happened was years before, the defendant had told some parole officer, had lied, said he'd been in combat in Vietnam, et cetera, and that had become the actual story. But the prosecutor had done his homework, gotten the actual records, so he let this expert who thought he was just killing it dig himself even deeper, and then he blasted them. Then they end up calling a witness in rebuttal, and this guy takes a stand, and he's some young kid, and he's terrified. And he's shaking. He doesn't want to look at the defendant. And they ask him who he is. And it was the old jail in San Mateo. He has a cell next to the defendant. And you know, he's in for, like, some auto theft or something. So they ask him if he hears voices at night. Because the defendant is saying he hears voices at night. And he says, yes, yeah, I do hear voices at night. They ask him, well, are you schizophrenic? No, I'm not schizophrenic. Do you know who those voices are? He says, yeah. Um, so there's four of us in our cell, and we always make sure that one of us is awake at all times because we're afraid he's going to reach through the bars and kill one of us. 
so so much for the schizophrenia. They then called, and this was my, and this is what made me think of it. They then called a woman who I still remember this. She had gone to the high school prom with Jablonski somewhere in Kansas in the 1960s. And they called her to talk about what a great time they had had, how he was such a gentleman and he bought her a flower. And the whole reason she was called was simply to demonstrate that apparently this is one woman, it seems like the only woman who ever spent time with Jablonski alone who lived to tell about it. So the purpose of me telling that story is that the idea that the defense was going to argue that, hey, listen, Bob could have killed Gilberta and Douglas between this time he didn't try to do it. One, it's factually wrong because he did try to kill absolutely Douglas. And two, it's irrelevant because he had no motive to kill Gilberta. And as soon as they ended up, um, if you go back to 2001, when he thought that he was about to be charged in Kathy's killing, what he did was is he went out and he was stalking Gilberta, and the evidence from the car demonstrated he was going to kill her too. And the bosaw, the brand-new bosaw that was in the car, that was apparently going to be for either Douglas or Gilberta. So that argument that, well, Bob didn't kill Gilberta or Douglas between 03 and 15, it reminded me of Jablonski calling the prom date, and it was just about as effective. That concludes this episode of Jury Duty, the Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks. Join us on our next installment as John Lewin concludes his critique of the defense team's work on the Durst case and offers insight into his greatest concern during the trial, the possibility of a corrupt juror. Also, if you want to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. 